We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Joining me today, I am so pleased to welcome two friends and the hosts of the Film Stage's excellent podcast, The B-Side, which covers movie stars in a fascinating way by focusing not on the films that made or kept them famous, but the ones that actors made in between. The delightful show just celebrated its four-year anniversary, and I had such a fun time joining hosts Dan Mecca and Connor O'Donnell to discuss a handful of films starring Marissa Tomei last year, including Happy Accidents, which I make everyone watch. A producer and a filmmaker living in Pittsburgh, Dan Mecca started the film stage with Jordan Raup in college at Buffalo, and Connor O'Donnell is a post-production supervisor based in New York City and also serves as a critic for the film stage. Gentlemen, thank you so much for Zooming in with me this week. How are you doing and how's summer been treating you so far? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no, this is great. I've got my Black Rain t-shirt on. I just did, noticed did I, that. Did I, did I get did I get yeah, that for I, you? Uh, or no? My Black Rain t-shirt that I got is a special gift from Dan Mecca. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> babe, yeah, that's the, a good t-shirt, babe. Yeah, yeah, yeah babe. babe, yeah, babe. <laughs> I was just reading, who was just tweeting about the, or was it an article about like the yeah, it was about, I think it was, I want to say maybe it was Bill Gay. It was somebody talking about Bruce Willis and like the archetype of like the John McClane coming at, like the antidote to the, to the Sly Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger and how everybody was kind of trying to do that. And they referenced Michael Douglas and Black Rain. And it is funny. That's true. That's like Michael Douglas doing his version of 80s action hero. It's right. so, yeah, that movie is wild, but it yeah. really is. Yeah. It's a good love story between those two guys. <laughs> yeah. I two think. men. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. Two beautiful yeah. men. Yes. Yes. I know. Isn't yeah. it a little wild that it's not like a Michael Mann movie? It well, it has this. It has yeah. it. Yeah. That's yeah. this kind of, yeah. Just, you could, well, you could program Michael right, Mann, right next to all. Yeah. Michael Mann was just on some podcast and he was going through, it might've been the Mark Marin. He was going through a little bit of his, his up, you know, 
he, you know, he went to school in Europe and everything and, and he knew Ridley, like they kind of were, you know, contemporaries in England a little mm. bit. And so I always think it's funny where you would, you know, be spot checking your, your contemporary. And I, you know, it's like, yeah, Ridley was kind of like, yeah, maybe I'll make a thief, but I'll do it my way. You know, it's like, right. Right. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. My friend Travis Woods likes to describe Black Rain as Ridley Scott doing Tony Scott doing Ridley Scott. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You can yeah. kind right. of see we, that a little bit. Yeah. And we we interviewed Darius Wolski for our show uh, about a year ago, I, I want to say. And we mentioned to him, because he shot this movie, how The Counselor, which is a movie I think me and Connor both love. Um, oh, that feels, one's fun. Yeah. Feels like Ridley Scott doing tony scott and mm-hmm. in that interview Darius wolski literally kind of doesn't confirm it but he like had he tells a story from the set of it that basically kind of Whoa. you know because that tony had passed away right around that time they were filming like right when they were filming and so it basically suggests some amount of homage you know for his brother while they're filming which is kind of a nice that sentiment. is it's sad i've never heard that but that's beautiful yeah yeah you yeah, can kind so. of see it now that i'm thinking about the counselor that's great yeah, yeah, the lighting and the, yeah, the the general aesthetic feels in the world of of Tony as opposed to Ridley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This took a total like left hand turn into why aren't we talking about the Scots? But that'll be the next. <laughs> I know. That's yeah, we'll come back. back. We'll do a whole episode. Yeah, we'll do a Scott really? the Scott Brothers, Brothers. episode. <laughs> That'd be awesome, actually. But anyway. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations on the anniversary of the B side. What have you guys recorded and released recently? And are there any episodes or projects in the works, either on the pod or through the film yeah. stage? That yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, Connor, you go. Connor's Connor. Yeah, knows so we just we celebrated our four year anniversary. Yeah, um, we that's awesome. so we're a we're because it's been four years. We're a bi weekly podcast, so we churn out roughly about twenty five episodes a year. So actually, we took a hiatus uh, because we are going to be coming back with our one hundredth episode yeah. very soon. Oh, cool. We don't have an exact we don't have an exact date for it yet, but we took a little bit of a summer break as we as we prep for that. So. We've got something kind of fun in the works for that. And then um, and then our episodes 101 and 102 are also kind of, if people here have listened to the B-side, will be fun kind of callbacky episodes that I will not spoil here. But okay. you'll hear more about that <laughs> soon. Wow, I'm um, excited. So we, we have some, yeah, we have some fun stuff uh, coming up uh, for sure. But uh, but Jen, your your episode is by far my favorite. So you just have I know that's a great episode. The Mercy Tomei <laughs> one's great. You guys um, are sweet. You always know flatter the host or yeah. <laughs> no, but it's but that that was fun. I, the thing about the Tomei episode, aside from obviously your lovely um, presence and your your insight, of course, oh. is I do think we picked a great four, which is something me and Connor always talk about when we're recording. Sometimes like. We we had I, I've said this before, but we had Roxana Haddad, the great Roxana Haddadian yes, on for Paul a Paul Newman episode, and I know she was just on for the Americans, right? With yep. with your show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we were laughing with her while we were recording that the four we chose were like bad, kind of were, were like, like all, pretty were bad like... movies, and it was like Paul Newman who may, might be the greatest movie star who's ever lived, and we were yeah. kind of laughing like it was interesting, of course, in its own way, but in a way kind of sad that it was like these like pretty not strong newman uh movies but um but the tomei 
the Tomei was good because like Happy Accidents is lovely, like you've mentioned, Jen. And then like even Oscar kind of is like a sneaky underrated movie we were talking yes. about. And like, Unhooked yeah, the and stars then Unhooked the good. Stars, very underrated. I then think. I yeah. chose Watcher for James Spader and um, Keanu Reeves. Like, what oh, was the Watcher, thinking? right? The yeah. wa- I forgot about the Watcher. I but the Watcher, fascinating in its yeah. own in its own way, though. Yeah. Yes. Um, no. Anyway, yeah. Exactly. Well, when you guys were thinking of films and themes to cover today, I was so excited by your creativity and your willingness to push past expected ideas. And really, as you do on the B side, dig for the unchampioned, unexplored cinematic terrain that you've been wanting to focus on. And I think that's precisely what you did with the topic of crew members turned director. We'll get into the individuals and films we selected in just a moment. But before we do that, why don't you guys give us a sneak peek behind the curtain at how you came up with today's idea and why it appealed to you? Well, I, Connor, you can correct me here, but I think it kind of sparks from you know, we work. So, you know, I'm for my day job, obviously. Yeah. I, I started the film stage with, uh, with Jordan in college and Connor was right there uh, amongst us. You know, we all, we all went to university of Buffalo and, oh, um, that's cool. yeah, yeah. And, and so we all were film school people, blah, blah, blah. And then, so we all kind of went to New York to pursue different Jordan wanted to be an editor, Connor and me, I guess, wanted to write and direct. I get, you know, I don't know, but yeah, but any, but we all found our good. kind of callings where you know yeah. Jordan does great work in kind of an adjacent field for film, um, and then Connor basically he oversees the editors, and I oversee the whole sh- shoot, right? So I'm a producer. Connor's a post producer, and, and and Jordan works um, for uh, uh, Film Society Lincoln Center. So. I think when I think about crew members, I think the one thing as a as a film fan, it's not neglected. Neglect is too strong of a word, but I always think when you work on these things, you know, the grip does so much. Yeah. The gaffer does so much. The sound guy does so much. The script supervisor, the wardrobe person, blah, blah, blah. And so I always am a little like when when the auteur thing really catches heat and whatnot, um, which I totally get. Yeah, I always get a little defensive of like the 100 people like right behind the director who are right. like doing what he or she or they are asking for. And so I think when you asked and me and Connor were just kind of like, oh, what could be fun? I was like, well, you know, what's interesting. It's like it's interesting when people like don't within the first five years of their career necessarily become directors or like writers, obviously, very commonly, depending mm-hmm. on their level of success, can become directors. And that seems like a pretty you know um standard yeah standard like avenue whatever yeah. yeah yeah but like this idea of like production designers costume designers publicists right like editors in some cases like Special um effects. yeah like what like one guy we're not going to talk about right but just like you know an interesting guy is like Stuart baird right sure. was one of the hollywood's most in demand editors right he yeah. he had contracts at studios he he made he edited some of the biggest movies of the 80s and 90s and then he made um he directed Executive Decision, and then I love this movie, it. yeah, 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 which is a good action movie. And then, yeah. he, and then I want to say, kind of correct me here, but then it was U.S. Marshals, right? The sequel to The Fugitive. I like I that one, indeed. Yeah, 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 yeah also yeah. kind of underrated. And then his director crew basically stopped because oh. he directed Star Trek Nemesis, which at the time was like a vi- it ended Star Trek for a while because it really did oh, not wow. do well. And now Stuart Barrett edits. Like, that's what I love. He just was like, I feel like Stuart Bear was like, you know, hey, what a run. 
yeah. I'm gonna just edit. Like <laughs> I just like that's and so those edit. things fascinate me. Like I you think know, too yeah. to that point, Dan. Like, I mean, that's a he's not one of the people we chose to talk right, about. Right, but right, I, right. I do think what we're gonna examine here is also kind of maybe you know, we, we obviously speak from a place of championing all these crew members with these very backgrounds and all these different things. But I feel like it also simultaneously might prove the point of people that would be like, yeah, but directing is really fucking hard, right? Like, oh, God. Oh like, God. you know, like, and so you have this thing of somebody who maybe moves into a position. We'll talk about Douglas Trumbull. Yes. In a minute, who I think is kind of one of the I I couldn't find anything that necessarily confirmed this, but seems like one of those guys to a degree where like he made some of his own projects happen um and he he directed two movies and they're both pretty good i think but i think he also kind of realized like how Not for me yeah how hard it is you know yeah um, yeah. yeah that's a really good point and then other people uh that you wouldn't think about as far as becoming a director after years of doing something else and then staying there. I mean, you have somebody like Nicole Hall of Center who started mm-hmm. as, I believe, a PA for Woody Allen. You have Joel oh, Schumacher right. who worked, um, Schumacher did costuming for, for years. And so, yeah, it's just a fascinating way uh, to learn about all the different departments. And I think it helps. Them yeah. Out. Yeah. And Schumacher's a great, I actually didn't even think about that. Schumacher's a, Schumacher's a great example because he's one of my favorite I, I tweeted recently about Ron Howard and how he's become this like easy target for like quote unquote yeah. hack filmmaking, which I I I, I feel is incredibly unfair. Me um, too. And he's yep. another kind of good example. He was an actor first, of course, yep. and, and whatnot. But Schumacher is another good example. Obviously, he's made plenty of bad movies, R.I.P., but a lot of very good movies. And he yes. really represents like he is a great like work a day was a great work a day director, and he and he like talked like that and he like took studio notes and applied them and he fought mm-hmm. the fights he thought he could fight and he conceded you know where he thought where he thought he needed to concede and like i'm not saying we should like celebrate the the middle of the road more necessarily i'm just saying like the people work hard on those movies too i think yes, and so i think I part of this the this theme i think represents that a little bit where it's like you know that it's so crucial right like you know they may yeah. not all be 2001 a space odyssey which Douglas trouble worked on but um yeah. they, they are worth exploring and celebrating you know yeah all those people work very hard on them and all their creativity yes yeah 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 well as longtime listeners know by now here is where i would normally begin the discussion by introducing each movie one by one but i'm dealing with pros here as you know, and you've been listening. And Alleged, maybe, yeah. Pros and scare quotes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, maybe. Yes, well, two guys who know and love some of these films and have very <laughs> unique professional perspectives on them because they do work uh, as crew. So I'm sharing hosting duties with Connor and Dan on this one, beginning chronologically with an environmentally themed science fiction film from 1972. I'm going to let Connor O'Donnell start us off with Silent Running and the crew member turned director behind it. Yeah. So like I sort of briefly alluded to, um, Silent Running was a uh, a 1972 film, was directed by Douglas Trumbull, who basically is mostly known for being just a VFX master in terms of, you know, I mean, if you look at his resume, he actually just recently passed away. Very sad. Um, But 
his resume um, was just kind of, at least insofar as that feel, just unstoppable, right? Like mm -hmm. he worked on 2001 Space Odyssey. Obviously, he did not work on Star Wars, but it is one of those things of like, you can't. I mean, I, it's you he did because yeah, they right, used right, everything right, he invented. Right. That, you that's know? kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, like yeah. It's, <laughs> it's sort of like how people like James Cameron would go on to say, like, you know, he couldn't have made Avatar without Lord of the Rings, right? Things like yeah. that. Like, that it just the world of VFX is that kind of a thing where it built it, 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 yeah, and 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 people are constantly, you know, it's a living um, organism, yeah. And pe people are constantly Ooh, like talking that. to each other about these things too, right? Like it's it's very much like, oh, what are you doing on this thing? That feels like that might work. And then you see that that you know, you see something that someone's doing on another production, and you either pull that over into your production or you use it on the next one, right? And so there's I don't a camaraderie might be kind of a strong term, but there is certainly a very um, an openness to the world of VFX um, that I do think it, it I think that pervades a lot of larger scale filmmaking, um, maybe more so than people certainly as viewers like to admit. Right. Like, I think as viewers, we see things in competition, we see things in whatever. And I think um, a lot of these things kind of really affect one another even if they're completely unrelated. So it, it just can't go uh, overstated just his overall effect on the world of VFX at large, but his most notable things would be 2001 uh, Blade Runner. Yes. So he worked uh, on Star Trek, the motion picture, mm -hmm. which was directed by Robert Wise. And he basically wholesale directed the sequence in that movie that was the reveal of sort of the movie version of the enterprise um, because wise basically was like, you know what you're doing here? Like just oh, wise, why, you know, wise, wise is the same thing with West side story with the dancing. Yeah, no, it, it, it's hey, wise was a smart guy. Wise no, was like, yeah, wise he, was like Jerome knew. Robbins just direct. Yeah, the no, no, yeah. It's, yeah. it's very similar. It's not my wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> and granted, the first Star Trek motion picture movie is is regarded as maybe one of the lesser of those movies. Pretty slow. Um, yeah. In in general. But that moment is wonderful, right? And like it's it so it's there's a level of um I think a attention to detail that definitely pervades silent running. And then uh also Trumbull's other movie, he only directed two films, his other movie, Brainstorm, um, which that movie's crazy. I was fortunate enough to actually recently just see it at the Museum of the Moving Image here in Queens uh, in 70 millimeter. Oh, and wow. he does some wild stuff with format in that movie um, that really like in a in a sort of um, pre 3D world really creates just some dizzying stuff. I won't get into it because it's not one of our movies we're talking about, but. I will just say if you're any kind of either a cinematography nut, science fiction nut, or VFX nut, watch Brainstorm. It rules. It's so good. Natalie um, Wood. Yeah. 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 Which I, I, know, I right believe was her last, was her, was her last film, film right? yeah. with Christopher Walken. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what happened on that boat? Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Robert knows. That's Robert a whole knows. other podcast. Right. Yeah. yeah Robert knows. Um, <laughs> but. But yeah, Silent Running was Trumbull's first movie, and um, it basically, it's sort of an environmentally minded science fiction movie. It centers on Bruce Dern, who is a botanist on board this ship called the Valley Forge in this mm -hmm. sort of 
dystopian post-apocalyptic future where there is no more vegetation on the planet earth. Everything's overrun by, you know, just companies and say, you never see the earth in the movie, but you get the idea that it's basically just all sort of industrial, uh, like just late, 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 late stage capitalist dystopia kind of thing. Um, and he is the botanist on board a ship called the Valley Forge, which is one of a number of ships that are carrying these sort of big uh, domes at their front that are housing what was left of Earth's vegetation. And his sole job is to just maintain this vegetation. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, are we good? Can we go full spoilers? Or are we just going to kind of oh, like, go, sure. go for it? So. Yeah, so basically, very quickly into the movie, I will say also this, along with most of the movies we're going to talk about, are like lean, which is great. This movie is mm-hmm. like 89 minutes. Yeah, long. they're, they're all that. pretty um, short. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, they're all pretty short. It's, it's yeah. amazing. Um, but basically, Bruce Dern finds out that his directive has basically been canceled. Mm-hmm. And they're like, ditch the domes, nuke them, come back to Earth. Everybody else is super happy. Bruce Stern, who is obviously so attached to his cause and these plants and his basically sole purpose, decides, I can't abide that. So he essentially sabotages the return to Earth, keeps the one dome on the Valley Forge and manages to kill all of the other crew members. Mm -hmm. He then sort of fakes the destruction of the Valley Forge and winds up pivoting it behind uh the dark side of saturn which is basically they don't really say but that's basically where the movie gets its title essentially uh, yeah i, I guess so about that yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty vague i, I mean gonna, and i'm also a, gonna a, be fully honest in hearing about that i had never seen this movie before this i hadn't either. Every, no okay you hadn't either? always yeah, hearing okay. always hearing the name silent running i was sure it was a submarine movie Oh, that's funny. Like, and I, I think it's because it to be like Logan's Run. I, I don't know what I. Well, it's similar. Yeah. Uh, I think within two pro- years could, of yeah, Logan's and you Run, you can probably yeah. program I mean, it with Logan's Run. Yeah, I mean, people you for you know people forget this time period: Soylent Green, Logan's Run, Silent Running. Like this, like Invasion very brief moment. Invasion. Like, yeah. That's a great point. Rollerball. Yeah, yep. That brief moment of like eco-liberal friendly sci-fi for the hippies yes. blah 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 was like a thing that happened sure. and probably the least successful of all of them was was silent running but but an interesting movie i mean yeah and that's yeah, got, i mean it's, it's got to be probably a thing kicked off by planet of the apes right i guess so right yeah like, oh that's a good one i think so another thing i found fascinating about this is who wrote it i mean you have yeah chimino yeah. the two who wrote deer hunter which is one of my favorite films and you have yeah. Stephen Bochco, who you know, early, NYPD early, an early Bochco, early Bochco, <laughs> early like, Bochco. We love early Bochco. Yeah, and I yeah, love Bruce uh, Stern in this era when he was still. They were figuring out what to do with Bruce Stern. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, this was around the time of King and Marvin Gardens, where yeah, he played yeah. the Nicholson part, and Nicholson played what would become the Dern part. And amazing, she, yeah, like, the yeah, late Bob yeah. Rafelson, yeah, an amazing yeah. movie. No, Dern, I think he, I was looking at some of the older reviews. Dern got kind of mixed notices. I'm, oh, really? on, the, I'm on the positive side for sure. I think oh, sure. I do too. Yeah. I think he's really good in this movie. I, this movie's way more complicated than I thought it was going to be in terms well, of like, 
like, he the, murders the, the other crew members. Well, the, right? the, the like, plot so it was not. Yeah. 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 That. yeah. Yeah. The plot is insanely simple. Yeah. Right. And just mm-hmm. in terms of what you just said, which is just like they say, ditch it. You know, they say just the pots. He says no. He kills everybody, and that's kind of the whole movie, right? Right. The rest it's almost kind like of the, just if the first act kind of, of the kind movie of semantics. was the whole movie, right? Well, and I would say my biggest. Well, that to your point, my biggest criticism with silent running is that it kind of it kind of feels like that for me. I like the movie, but I think it it does have a little bit of that first time director thing where. You know, Trumbull's repurposing literal sequences he built for 2001 right. that they didn't it that didn't make like, yeah. the final yeah, just cut for, inside. Yeah, I mean, for, literally, for he was doing that. So like, and it feels like that. Uh, yeah. So Silent Running takes place all around Saturn. There's a huge sequence, which is super cool. Uh, that's basically just built around like he's going to have to go through the rings of Saturn, right? Yeah. This like impending, psychedelic. Yeah, yeah. Impending, like very dangerous thing or whatever. Um, and just in the context of 2001, Kubrick actually wanted 2001 to take place around Saturn, Saturn. and, and Trumbull couldn't crack the Saturn sequence basically. And so they were just kind of like, we're doing Jupiter. That'll be a little easier. I, I suppose I'm, I'm oversimplifying, I'm sure their decision, but yeah, that was basically <laughs> what it was. And what Dan's, what Dan's speaking to is that they basically then, you know, Trumbull, cracked the Saturn thing. Like he kept working on it yeah. and figured it out and then used it for silent running. Um, and it looks super cool. I mean, I, you know, I suppose obviously you have to like grain of salt it a little bit in terms of, you know, 1972 visual effects, but I, I love that. I, yeah. I love that kind of stuff personally. I think, I think what he's able to pull off is really cool. And there are in particular uh, these three, androids or like sort of little little helper robots uh these played drone robots disabled yeah. people which yeah, was yeah. great played by i uh, now were they did they not have legs is I think that it was bilateral yeah okay uh, yeah oh i didn't know that that's interesting yeah, yeah. so all, all three of these um these drone robots that he dubs huey dewey and louie uh after Classic. he's dispatched the other crew members um were 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 basically amputees in in suits that were sort of tailor made for yep. the amputees. Four bilateral um, amputees. Yep. Wow. An and, idea inspired by Johnny Eck, a sideshow performer of the earliest twentieth century, who'd been born without lower limbs. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. I will. It's the kind of I I to your point, Dan, about the um, it feeling maybe a little slight in the back half, I think it is because Trumbull probably does. I mean, he, he sort of, you know, he basically shoots his shot with the Saturn sequence and the movie kind of visually certainly peaks there. Well, maybe he shoots his budget too. I mean, we, we we can't speak to it, but I mean, it's a a small movie, right? I don't know that it was a huge um, investment mm -hmm. in any scenario for the studio. Um, Probably off of the success of 2001, maybe Trumbull's able to kind of cash in to some degree, but not not a huge degree. And obviously, it sounds like Trumbull did a lot of free work anyway, right? That's so, right. You know, yeah. Yeah, as a passionate guy, right? You know, so, yeah, I just think, and Jen, it sounds like you agree. I think you get to a place where this movie where, like, you get some, like, Deus Ex stuff at the end that kind of feels... It doesn't feel cheap. It just feels necessary to like end a movie, right? Was, so I, I it's think like tacked you know, on a little. So, yeah, yeah like, where you're you're a bit like, 
okay, I guess one of the, how else yeah. would you end it? I guess one of the biggest criticisms like of the movie. Um, Roger, you would love this movie, by the not, way. Not overall uh, of the movie, but one of the biggest criticisms of criticisms of specific parts of this movie came from Carl Sagan. Oh, like, Carl. I bet if you, I bet <laughs> if you're so, but I, I will say, I bet if you're someone making like a sci-fi space thing and Carl, but Sagan's then like, they made contact. What did Carl Sagan think about his own adaptation? Contact, <laughs> which I love, too. which I love contact, but you know, but um, I, he's Carl's got a great point. Because his biggest problem with the movie, and this is sort go. of this is sort of what becomes the second conflict in the movie, is Bruce Stern holds on to this dome that has the remains of the the, the last of the rainforest, right? Like Ferngully mm-hmm. in it. And um yeah. and he goes behind Saturn and then he's like the plants are dying. Why are the plants dying? And then the ultimate reveal is like, well, because you're behind yeah. Saturn and they're not getting sunlight. And Carl Sagan, how would parap- he not know I'm that? Paraphrasing yeah. here is he's yeah. like, he's like a future space botanist. Well, why would he ever forget that the plants that, need light? Like, <laughs> so I, I, and I, I will say, I think it's a good movie, point. I, and this is good directing. I think, I yeah. think the movie is good enough and tense enough. That I honestly never thought about that. Like I didn't, I didn't really. Nope. It didn't. I. But it's yeah. a great point. Like it's it's it because yeah. it's it's really dumb. It makes no sense. But I will say kudos to Douglas Trumbull for like stringing out whatever tension he had for the viewer to the I, point where like I don't yeah. I didn't really care about it. Like I it think to me I did think about it a little bit once it was revealed where I was kind of like oh yeah that seems stupid but then you think like. It's that thing about the theoretical and the practical. It's like a guy like Bruce Dern, botanist though he may be, has never been behind Saturn before. Sure. So so even though he knows in his theoretical educational brain that that's what happened, once you're behind Saturn, probably the last thing you're thinking about is the sun. You're probably thinking, holy shit, I'm behind Saturn. Like, what the hell is going on? And he kind of disassociated from Yeah, that's another great point. Yeah. Another great point. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's an interesting movie. The Chimino of it all is obviously super interesting as well. You know, Chimino obviously kind of cut his teeth on screenplays before he made, before he literally convinced uh, Eastwood to let him direct Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which is amazing. I want to talk about great debut movies. Holy shit. That is <laughs> Thunder, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is an incredible uh, debut. And so, yeah, Chimino kind of, there's a, you know, there's a cynicism that prevails through the movie. That feels very to me. Very to me now. Yeah. Um, and and honestly, and very kind of very botch, very botchkoey, actually. Yeah. You know, because because yeah. I, you know, during the um during the never ending pandemic, I did rewatch um the first season of NYPD Blue. And I was sure. like, this shit is dark. I it forgot. Really was. It is wild, like yeah. you know, um, how dark that gets. Anyway, but yeah, but that stuff I think is kind yeah. of the, the to me, that was the best stuff in the movie like i love the fact that like the reason that they need to get rid of the domes is because all of the spacecraft are owned by american airlines yeah great and american airlines is basically like nah we we want them back like just yeah. get rid of the rate like we want them we want the ships back so you gotta we'll never back. know what that's like well, we'll never know what that's like corporations running everything we'll never know right we'll never it's so, yeah. it's so fictional it's so foreign yeah. <laughs> yeah no it was a really interesting watch i kind of was thinking this would have been a perfect like short film probably 30 to 45 minutes yeah. but 
but it was interesting. It was really cool effects. I love the environmental angle and good to see Bruce Dern kind of in this mode you don't think of him in. So that was really a clever idea, you guys. Yeah, yeah. thanks. I, yeah, I think it's nice to it's nice to watch it and kind of just see, you know, from the crew member standpoint, see it all yeah. come together in some in some capacity. And I think I can use this, Jen, you tell me I can use this as a transition to our next movie if you'd like. Um, sure. Th yeah. That's my that's mine, right? The yeah. next one. Yeah, I was going to say the next one is very near and dear to your heart. And if I it remember is. right, it, it was one that kind of helped inspire this idea. You were like, I just want to talk about violets or blues. A hundred percent. I think it's exactly what inspired the idea because so it's yeah, what, it's what on the B side we would call Dan Mechacore. Yeah, it is. It Ooh. is sure. It's true. So in, in, on the show, uh, over the, I think Corey Everett might've coined this term, our good friend cinephiles Indeed. own Co yeah. Corey Everett. Um, I think Mechacore is like kind of, it's a mix of easily digestible genre fare um, slash dad slash Sunday after rainy Sunday afternoon stuff, right? It would be okay. all fit into the mecha core or whatever. So, yeah, but it's also like a movies for adults thing, too. I sure. feel like is in there. Like if it's if it's just about a movie about people and their problems, like <laughs> that's where I live. That's that, that's I that's where I, that's where I live. baby. Yeah. So. So yeah. So anyway, so Violets of Blue. I'll, I'll I'll be I'll be quite. The movie's quite brief, so I can be quite brief on this. So so anyway, Violets of Blue. Uh, Jack Fisk directed it, who is one of our great production designers, still oh, working yeah. today. Currently currently working on Killers of the Flower Moon as we speak. Yes. Uh, Fisk came to prominence in the film world working with the great Terrence Malick on stuff mm -hmm. like Badlands. I think he's an art director on Badlands, and I don't know. That he, I don't think he gets the full designer credit on days of heaven but if you watch the read listen to interviews about the production of those films fisk gets a lot of credit mm -hmm. um so fisk you know if you know those movies those those first two malik films i mean and this is where the crew thing gets lost a little bit you know people talk about the cinematography people talk about the malik stuff of course but the, the, a production design, designer's job is so to crucial. make sure yeah it's to make sure that the house looks the way it does before you start rolling the film, right? So yeah. when Sam Shepard is standing in front of that field while the locusts are flying, like the production designer made sure the field looked like that and he made sure that the locusts were going to be available with whoever the animal person was, right? So like mm -hmm. Fisk is running that stuff, right, to some degree. Yeah. And that's, there's a practicality to that that's not sexy and it gets lost. In, in, it gets lost in how the sausage is made and that's fine and that's normal. But I think that's Fisk, right? So he's literally creating a look that has been copied for half a century, right? That mm -hmm. the, the days of heaven thing has literally been copied, you know, in good ways and bad ways for 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 literally, you know, for literally, you know, almost 50 years. And so and anyway, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say in production design in general, it, it to me almost feels like the pre slash production version of editing which is to say it's like the right. most successful when you don't see it right like well sound like no, too right yeah, 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 sound like, yeah. Well. yeah. it's just, i mean and granted now that i say that i mean that yeah that that probably applies to a ton of almost every department right but it feels your, natural yeah, yeah. Well, especially point, especially fisk right because i yeah, think like 
some production design that's amazing if you're talking about like Black Panther, right? Which also well, like right. root, root, yeah, like, yeah. Blade with, Runner or in a Blade West, Runner. A Wes Anderson yeah. movie or something like that. It's, where it's very, a little bit it's, more ostentatious, right? Yeah. And you're meant to be like, oh, this world is interesting. Whereas with a Fisk film in its own way, yeah, to your point, it, it we're meant lived to, in. yeah, we're meant to literally be like, oh, we're on a train with you know brooke adams richard yeah. gear linda man and you're not and just thinking the about train. the train though but because no. jack yeah. fisk is so good at his job right like yeah yeah so so i think fisk obviously has some cachet he's um i think quickly married to sissy space like any of the late 70s or early 80s 70s. early and then, 70s early, they okay, met on badlands yes. oh they met on badlands of course yeah yeah so then he makes two movies within a few years in the early to mid 80s and the first one's called raggedy man i like that one which yeah. i'll tell you i'd recommend um everybody yes. check that one out that's a this is another callback to our show but that's a julie mecca my mother that's oh. a julie mecca special julie mecca loves <laughs> mama, mecca mama mecca yeah oh yeah <laughs> she loves raggedy man and, and as yeah. do i sam shepherd sam shepherd's in that one actually oh. as, along with sissy spacek and um eric roberts is so good. Eric young young yeah. his first uh his first movie role um or his second movie role. i think king of the gypsies was first but right yes, right around the was. beginning yeah and then um anyway so the movie violets are blue is 85 his second feature film that he directed jack fisk uh it's Sissy Spacek. It's Kevin Klein. I think it's Kevin Klein's like third movie, fourth movie. It's like right after Sophie's Choice, right around the Big Chill, mm -hmm. um, right after probably right after Pirates of Penzance, and it's basically seaside town. Uh, Kevin Klein is married to Bonnie Bedelia, the great Bonnie Bedelia. Let's say. Yeah. Oh my god, let's just, she's yeah. so good. We're gonna, yeah, she's the highlight of the show. Everybody, if you're listening, and, just take your yeah. own minute. And just appreciate yeah, Bonnie. Bet Bonnie, we she love Bonnie. She never gets enough love. No, never, ever. She never does. Oh, and so, God. it's Kevin and Bonnie, and they have a, a son who's you know you know ten whatever. Seaside town. He runs the local newspaper, um, and they have a nice life, right? They have a nice life. Um, there's you know there's the fishing business is kind of the thing that runs the town. Yeah, a concurrent, a concurrent, yep. yeah, a concurrent theme plot in the film is that, like, of course, big business is trying to in impeach, and you know, you know, unions are getting rattled and jobs are being lost, and and you have local business fishermen getting very scared. That's like yeah. happening. So that's happening. Yep. Meanwhile, Sissy Spacek, who is the high school sweetheart of Kevin Klein, comes back into town after a long way away. She's a photojournalist. Who's been all over successful. the world? Yeah, yeah, very successful, like filming a bunch of stuff. And the whole movie is what if your high school love came back into town and they reconnect? It complicates things. It's kind of about Kevin Klein being reminded of the dreams he left behind. Yeah. Sissy, Sissy Spacek being reminded of the, you know, quote unquote normalcy she forgo. She, you know, she forgot to mm -hmm. to 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 go pursue her dreams. And I yeah, like I find the movie quite lovely, but not unlike Silent Running to connect two films. The moral, um, the moral turpitude is more intense than you would think. Yeah, which is yeah, to say, Kevin Klein is kind of, romance. kind yeah. of a real 
He, Kevin Klein sucks. I mean, no, the performance he's amazing, is amazing, but you know, it's an amazing movie. performance. He's a bastard. He yeah. Sucks. Yeah. He's such a piece of shit the whole time. And like, walks her yeah. home and goes, oh my God. Yeah. I, yeah. It's look, very quick. I, we don't need to spoil it. I mean, this isn't the type of movie that you would be I just, hindered yeah. to be spoiled by, but it's no, just, it, but yeah, the, it's like the infidelity that ensues yeah, I, early on. I, yeah. Early I on, even yeah. think that there's a yeah. version like, I don't know. There's too a way, early on Kevin too early. Yeah, there's on. a too way fast. to handle. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what it is. I think that's the heart of what it, it is, is because fast, there's yeah. a way to handle that kind of narrative. And I think a better version of mm-hmm. this kind of movie is a movie that we covered um, on our Meryl Streep episode called Falling in Love. <gasps> oh, beautiful movie. Same, same, came out, I think, the year before Gen this. Core, yeah, it's, they're very... Gencore, yeah, yeah, Gen I love it, Gencore. Uh, they're very... I think they're very similar movies. You could program them together, right? We're like programming it's, the it's, hell out of stuff. Yeah, like, let's, yeah. Go, let's do it, yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. It's... They're both very much like The Heart Wants with The Heart Wants movies. Yeah. And there's a way, I think, and not unlike Falling in Love you know, both of these movies, they do a pretty good job of humanizing everybody involved to mm-hmm. a degree. But I will say, like, the success of a movie like Falling in Love is that, like, that humanization does, it doesn't come without consequences and it carries all the way through. So, like, Robert De Niro, like, mild spoilers for that movie, I suppose. Robert De Niro cheats on his wife. Right. But he grapples with things. Yeah, but he grapples with it and, and it's not without fight. It, it, it's yeah. not without consequence. Yeah. And it's it's handled in such a deft way that like you both are glad that he's getting his comeuppance to a degree and all, but you also understand him. Like you're like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You're yeah, like yeah. Meryl's great. Like I don't and you're like clearly maybe in a loveless marriage. So like yeah. what are you to do? Right? Like the movie handles well, the thing, it all so well yeah. and this one I think I just in the way the Klein characters handled it more really, artifice a little, but I love the people. It's just a little more. It's a little I, more forced. I think the thing, yeah, the thing that so. here's the thing that here's yeah here's the thing that bothered. I like this movie a lot. So, so yeah, yeah, I agree. But, oh, but, I think but, it's good. It really interesting. But, yeah, but I think the thing that bothered me the most, and let me just say in terms of the production design, a great example of just like Fisk running shit and know, knowing what he knows is that Who town. Was the production designer on this movie? I, I I can look it up, but but. But that town, the the violets are blue town. This is just a great example of what we're talking about with production design. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, you guys agree with me. It feels like a full town. It's an sure, eighty minute movie, does. and there's yeah. only a few scenes really in the movie, yeah. and you feel like you know this town. Sure, and yeah. and that is production design. And I think a common thing you find in modern movies, not to speak in platitudes, but I think this applies. That type of lived in um like fully worn production design i do think is lacking in a lot of what we get these days and so watching something like violets or blue and to another degree falling in love since you brought it up you really get you, you don't even think twice about where you are. You like accept the reality oh, of that yeah. town. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a credit to, yeah, the production designer and Fisk, obviously, because of course that's where he comes from. And so, but anyway, the thing that bothered me just in the actual like narrative character scenarios is, you know, this is a very liberal movie, right? It's like Klein, which that doesn't bother me, but it's like Klein is a liberal progressive guy who runs the local newspaper and a lot of the fishermen have a kind of a problem with that because he's telling them to stop dragging, you know, the water. And they're like, how do I make my living? All very kind of 
environmental you know, straightforward. Yeah. 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 Actually. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, not unlike silent running and like, and like, um, but also straightforward. You understand the fishermen as well and all this. Oh yeah. And, and then you have obviously Sissy SpaceX, like very progressive because she's literally out there seeing the world, seeing the strife mm-hmm. and the whole thing. Yeah, she's and the then modern they, woman. She's basically in yeah. one scene, they kind of suggest that like Bonnie Bedelia is conservative. And and look, I'm I'm a fairly progressive person, but like this thing of like she's afraid of the city so fuck her she sucks i'm kind of like yeah, okay let's just yeah, it's a little will, let's pause a can little I bit Bonnie point, Bedelia, can i she seems lovely though a little I'm bit yeah i counter, counter can it. i counter just a, a little and, and again i don't i think what i'm about to defend is more what she's putting into the movie because she's such oh, a phenomenal performer well, then i would agree with you because yeah but yeah, but but yeah. I, uh, so i will say i don't know if this is fisk putting it actually textually in the movie but there's a lot, I think, in the movie of Bonnie Bedelia kind of, especially once things start developing. And she and even before even before she kind of shows her hand to Klein in terms of like her knowing what's going on or yeah. whatever. How can like, she not? Yeah. Right, right. And the movie is smart enough and at least treats her with enough decency that like you are kind of aware that she knows. Right. Like it's not. You're, oh, yeah. You're just like sort of waiting for it all to come to a head, but it never treats her like an idiot, which is great. Yeah. Um, and there isn't that scene you're expecting where she just screams at him and it's too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a it's confrontation. Handled, it's, it's handled way more deftly than that. Yeah. 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 There's a there's a there is a confrontation. But yeah, it's not. Oh, it's yeah, never. No. It's never melodrama. It's, not it's a never. Opera. Yeah. It's it's great. And she sells it completely. But even throughout the movie. Just the way she behaves with Klein, the way she behaves with their son, like, and they never, you know, you get it a little bit in a couple of her. I think the scenes between her and Sissy Spacek are wonderful because I like they both do such an amazing job of selling. And you never like, see those scenes. What, in a, movies. what a what a shitty no. situation they've both been put in. Like Kevin Klein is like, oh, I have to go out and whatever, get the right wine or whatever. So he like leaves for a minute after he's just invited his ex-girlfriend over unannounced basically for like dinner like and just the movie does it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie but where they're kind of talking to each other you can just see both of these people being aware of being aware of how shitty the situation is in both an empathetic way and a defensive way like yes it's it's so uh it's so like yeah it's amazingly Mm -hmm. executed but in all of that, I think is Bonnie Bedelia selling this thing of like to SpaceX of like, look, you're out there doing your photography thing, living your life, and I'm sure that that's hard, and I'm sure your job's hard, but like the thing I do is also really hard. Like, oh it's hell not, yeah, you know, like, and she never has to say it, and like that's good acting, right? Like that's sort of like thing so that would be my slight counter is that i think the movie might sort of shrug her off a little bit but i think she really does a lot with the performance to really kind of uh oh i agree with that i mean of course put 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 something behind that character i mean bonnie b i mean she's the mvp of this one there might be yeah Um, i wanted more scenes with her actually that was my thing yeah but I never I feel like we, we just never gave her like an, an enough of a shot. Like mm-hmm. I don't I mean she had a great career, but yeah, to your point, she never yeah, she never got her coal miner's daughter, right? To talk right, to her right. when you think about yeah. right, yeah, mm-hmm. SpaceX. Yeah. Um 
But yeah, I mean, look, yeah, it's a slight film in a lot of ways, but I think, you know, I, I kind of wrote this in my letterbox review. I, yeah, speaking to the whatever, the Mechacore quote unquote thing, it's like people just going through it in their lives. Always um, going to be interesting. Yeah. To, to me, if, yeah. if you handle it the way this movie does, even with our criticisms, I find it like like a miracle like you know what i mean like like you know stuff like i the wonder boys uh james mangold's heavy ted demi's beautiful girls i like all those yeah. every every nickel speaking of nickel every single nicole halsner movie like mm-hmm. like you know those are just off the top of my head examples of just like stuff where I, like i could watch that every third day and just be like yes like exactly, especially because exactly, it just you know? Especially because all in all the movies you just mentioned, but this movie, you know, it's just one of those movies. And it's the reason this sort of subgenre of movie is great is because like it might seem mundane, but the the trick is that they start saying things out loud that normal people never say. Right. And like so they, they just start literally vocalizing like yours or mine or whoever's internal feelings. And you're like, oh, my God, that I've always felt that and I've never really like put confronted it, into words it yeah. Or, yeah or put it into words or yeah. whatever and that that's like the magic of a movie like this for sure mm-hmm. yeah well said well said well said connor yeah I agree all right i'm out you. bye that's yeah. all bye, connor <laughs> you're you like peaked. i'm ending on a high yeah. note yeah <laughs> fuck the rest of the movie yeah. <laughs> yeah well next up we have the 2014 academy award best picture nominee selma yeah. film publicist turned filmmaker ava DuVernay. Originally inspired to direct while working in publicity on Michael Mann's Collateral, Ava DuVernay's sophomore feature, Middle of Nowhere, was her breakout work, making a big splash at Sundance and making her the first Black woman to win the award for directing in the U.S. dramatic competition. Very cool. A historical drama based on the 1965 Selma to Montgomery, Alabama voting rights marches led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., played here by David O'Yellowo, Selma, which was written by Paul Webb and heavily rewritten, about 90%, she estimates, by DuVernay, is brought to life by a remarkable cast, including Tom Wilkinson, Tim Roth, Cuba Gooding Jr., Giovanni Ribisi, Oprah Winfrey, and more. So let's get into it. What are your thoughts on Selma? uh, So, Jen, thank you for bringing up the writing thing. Uh, yeah. Not to derail us, but, yeah. but did DuVernay, I don't, you, might have, you might not have this information in front of you. Did DuVernay ever talk about the WGA with that thing? Because I was, I was watching. Well, yeah. Okay. Cause I was watching the movie um, a couple of weeks ago and I was like, we were watching some of it this morning and I was like looking at the Wikipedia and I saw the Paul, who's like a British guy, Paul Webb. Right. And I was like, wait, he wrote it. And then I was like, wait a minute. Like I was confused. But yeah. I didn't have time to kind of dig into it. So you just saying that reminded me. She did talk about that a little bit, right? She just couldn't yes. get co-credit was, or something? Yeah, it was in his contract that he was going oh, to get sole credit. Oh, he had to get sole credit. Yeah, but she actually rewrote 90%. Originally, he had the whole film just revolve around Lyndon Johnson and Dr. Martin sure. Luther King, pretty much. Oh, okay, and, more uh, like... I think yeah, Lee yeah. Daniels was on board for that version. And sure. then... So it was like more of a two-hander type thing. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like more stagey. Well, and then they actually made a version of that movie, right? With with uh, Brian Cranston. What what was that HBO movie? Yes, all the way. It's kind of like that, you know. Right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. What I found really interesting is she couldn't get the rights to the actual speeches. Interesting. Dr. King um, had given because the estate had yeah given yeah so. 
let me tell you, in my personal experience as an intern for the film production company many, many years ago, I went down the rabbit hole of trying to license the I Have a Dream speech. And I, I briefly spoke to the, the king of state. Let me tell you, they are very protective of that oh, man, yeah. which I don't even blame them. But it is like to a degree that is quite like they quite crazy. Yeah. Yeah. For it's this, quite intense. They'd already given the rights to Steven Spielberg and a different film company that they were working on another project. So it was like a competing project. And uh, this production company couldn't get the rights. So she just kept listening. She said she was walking around like L.A. hiking, going through the canyons, listening to the speeches and trying to get the rhythms of his speech and finding Mm. different things he would do a lot, like say things in triplicate, but three different ways of making the same point and trying to think how to make it sound like him, but not, you know, violate that copyright. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I. Yeah, go ahead, Con. Yeah. No, I was just gonna say I, I I rewatched it. This was the last one I rewatched. I rewatched it today. And like I I think by all counts is a success. I I you know, between her and David Oyelowo, like the the cadence of his voice in this movie is is insane to me because it yes. just feels it feels it's like very... you're listening to one of those recordings or watching one of those clips or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah I think you know it's funny. So with with uh, Duvernay, like so she was a publicist. She was kind of on the production side of things in some respects. She helped some documentary filmmakers kind of get their start. She made a couple of documentaries, right? Um, and then she made a couple of features. One of them was, uh, Jenny mentioned, uh, Middle of Nowhere. Great film. Um, yeah. Great film. And so she and she very openly talks about this when she talks about her, you know, it took her a while to to direct. I mean, she's in her 40s now. And I, I it maybe was in her late. 30s when middle of nowhere was popping off and like you know she had so much experience before any of that happened and i think it does show in her films um and re-watching selma the filmmaker i was reminded of more than most was martin ritt oh, right who, oh who, that's who, a good poll yeah, yeah which is, i think martin ritt's great martin ritt made a lot of great films and you know he did stuff like Norma Ray, right? I believe he directed Sounder. You know, like he was a very socially minded uh, guy. Made plenty of not as socially acceptable movies. Oh, yeah. you, know, it, you know, look up the outrage if you want to just. <laughs> uh, I think Bill recently tweeted about that, and you will just be like, oh, but but um, but Martin Ritt had that social uh, bend to a lot of his films, but they remained entertaining most of the time. They remained. Mm-hmm you know, movies first as entertainment and, and, you know, you would get the message, but not feel like you're being assigned homework. And I think Selma achieves that. I think obviously this is such a crucial point, sadly still extremely relevant when you think about voting rights and she gets all that information in, but she, she, she allows for scenes like, the four girls in the church, right? That horrible tragedy, yes. tra- uh, tragedy, right? That mm-hmm. Spike Lee made the documentary about it. And, oh, you know, brilliant documentary! Yeah. yeah, brilliant documentary. You know, Spike Lee, who led to the, I think ultimately, I believe, I, I don't want to speak at a school, but the arrest of those police officers. I think in making that documentary. I think you're right. Um, yeah. And um, anyway, the Oprah Winfrey scene that opens the film, right, doesn't need to be in the movie, mm-hmm. but you can tell that DuVernay is a smart enough filmmaker that she's like, no, 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 like you need this scene because you need 
if you just make the movie about Martin Luther King and LBJ mm-hmm. and you're not getting those moments with young John Lewis and, you know, somebody like the Oprah Winfrey character, what have you, you know, dealing with these impossible tests that they would give, you know, black people in the South because they didn't want them to vote, you know, these racist, you know, Jim mm-hmm. Crow scenarios that that makes all the world that makes all the all all of the difference in the world um and separates selma from like an after school special yeah right or something and like that you know and i think it's an easy trap to fall into and there's also and i think a keen um it's certainly just an astute eye on making that character oprah also like yes. there's something to be said for that like well, that's a publicity mind knowing. No, that's you, that's that's what you know, I'm saying. You get, she, like, yeah, like, let me Ava get Duvernay, Oprah. Ava DuVernay being someone from PR sees the 4D chess that you're going to do as a viewer, right? And so just the extra layer of that person to sort of give us the narrative in, even if we may not need it, like you said, Dan, from a, just a historical context standpoint, but to give us the narrative sort of empathetic in of like in, yeah the end of, yeah. of 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 voting issues uh the fact that it's oprah you're like not oprah not like, oprah yeah, like, exactly. don't, it's like well know, it's the, a, i the think the guy behind made... the glass you're like motherfucker can't you see that's oprah like i think a, a less successful movie but a, an equally smart choice she does a similar thing i think in a wrinkle in time in which she makes the dad character one of the most handsome people in the world, Chris Pine. I think that's essential. I'm not even really kidding. I think that's I essential to that did film. That because I always thought she did that because he cried during Glory at the Oscars. Oh well, you, you know, know. I mean, I just, which, uh, I just a, always assume that. What a champion! I assume that's why it happened, but but um, and gave him that beautiful, beautiful haircut. In can the I movie can well. I say something mildly controversial? Maybe tell me. I so you've, never, you've never been to Selma. Rewatching this movie, I loved this movie when it came out. I was kind of prepared for it to kind to like it less on a rewatch because um, mm-hmm. I haven't seen it since I saw it. I had not seen it when since it came it, out. Yeah, so me, me, it's me still, as well. It it still works. So g- good, good for it. Still, yeah. still worked in all the ways that I thought it would. I will say though, I think she's a better documentarian than she is a narrative filmmaker. Well, so far the track record would suggest as much. Yeah, right? and, yeah. I, and I know one. I know one of those is a wrinkle in time, which is like a just a you know sort of a giant bigger swing and therefore if it's a miss a bigger miss kind of thing like you know well adapting like, an impossible to adapt right right her and background it, as a journalist uh, that was you're right. oh, and, oh, and that's kind of, yeah. yeah that's kind of what i'm saying like i i yeah. think she just it lends it to it she comes more naturally to it i think and i mm-hmm. think generally in her filmography i like her documentary work more like i prefer yeah i prefer the 13th to selma if i'm being honest and i don't know if that's controversial or not no no i don't no, think so. i agree um, with you i think it's yeah it works better as a film but i love selma, yeah. of course yeah and, yeah. yeah and jen you know it's i was happy you kind of threw this movie and, and ava DuVernay into the mix because she was championing slash hosting that one perfect shot show on hbo max which our buddy neil miller obviously film school rejects one perfect shot the twitter handle whatever right so that all you know they basically they take that twitter handle one perfect shot and they extrapolate it with real filmmakers michael mann uh, um malcolm d lee uh i used to work with one perfect shot when it was starting out with oh did you i didn't know that oh okay that's awesome oh okay great jeff todd came up with it and i ran the facebook version of or 
not version, Facebook's one perfect shot for a while. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, that's wow. amazing. Yeah. Well, so so this is, well, that's kismet because I was going to say a thing, you can criticize that show all you want and how it kind of. Yeah, sure. I, I, I like the show. Um, yeah. I you love can all criticize the how they render the shot, I suppose. But like, like the for example, the, I think the Cassie Lemons one about Harriet is like lovely. And I, I recommend anybody interested in filmmaking should watch that episode because it's like you know john toll shot that movie cassie lemons is and we covered her on our show is such an underrated uh filmmaker and so there's a lot of interesting things there but point being that's a great example of this exact theme which is like ava DuVernay being someone in the business not just a director but in the business for 20 years yeah being like let me use this show as a platform to highlight not just these directors but like everything that goes behind Yes. goes on behind a shot and you have like people like malcolm d lee another incredibly underrated director talking oh, totally. about like getting the location in uh new orleans to film the scene in the middle of girl strip and he's talking about how impossible it was and for me i was like thank right. you this i love yeah. these stories like yeah. you know clearing that location getting the extras filming while people were actually drinking like how did they do it the zip line like mm -hmm. malcolm d lee didn't do any of that shit like he he called action and he made sure it was all good Delegate. but a whole team of people like made sure it was safe their stunt people made sure jada was strapped in made sure you know um you know queen was on the side and she wasn't going to fall off the thing like you get all of that in a brief moment in that in the one perfect shot show so i think you know um that stuff is great and i love that ava hosts it because it feels she's like the perfect um conduit for like that type of um celebration of like great moments in movies i really i i, I liked is, all that which is so what I would, are is baby like, yeah, 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 like, yeah. Yes. No joke, no joke. So, so she's good at it. Yes. When you brought up Soma, thing. I yeah. was like, yeah, that's a great. It's a great reason to just celebrate her as well. You know, just in that way. Yeah, and I love seeing her on Turner Classic Movies because she is just her love of film is so pure, and she's just a scholar and appreciates yeah. it just as a fan and somebody who has been around the business and working in it for so long. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it comes and, through. It comes yeah, through. I yeah. think the cast is just a powerhouse. Um, just it's it, packed. It's it incredible. Really, yeah, it really runs crazy deep in a way that I kind of forgot about because so many of those people are more prominent now, you know, that you're like, oh, wait, like Stefan James and Coleman Domingo, like all these people um, popping yeah. up. I mean, Tessa Thompson is like. Yeah, I know. She, All of a sudden, I forgot I she, like, she's, like, yeah, she's like, yeah, she's like, she's like throwing fireballs. I'm like, yeah. whoa, yeah, yeah. yeah. B, B side best friend Alessandro Navola. We love Alessandro. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, that was the thing, and I think he even mentioned it when we interviewed him uh, the first time. And I straight up was like, oh yeah, I forgot you were in this movie for like two scenes. You get a nice, you I get know. a great Dylan Baker. Just Dylan Bakering as uh, as mm -hmm. Hoover. Like you get under what I like is you get understated Giovanni Ribisi with which for any other actor would be overstated. <laughs> yeah, you, you know you get understated. So fun to watch. Yeah, his, yeah. You get his sneaky, hairline. Sneaky, his hairline is doing all the work in this. <laughs> you movie. get sneaky yeah. Pete himself coming in and just you get oh mixed God, in Jeremy, Strong, Jeremy Strong. Jeremy <laughs> Strong. Good show. It's a good show. <gasps> Jeremy Strong. Yeah. He breaks as your heart this, as he know, always priest, does. In things. Yeah, the, yeah. Or the uh, pastor priest who, yeah, he yeah. A, br a brief, a brief dalliance in that in that role. But 
Yeah, there's so much. I mean, look, the Selma thing. I mean, you know, so another irony we, we should just, I guess, acknowledge in because she was a publicist is publicity kind of hurt this movie, right? If you guys remember, because yeah, the wrong type of people, in my opinion, wrongly, in my opinion, criticized this mm-hmm. movie for its mistreatment of Lyndon B. Johnson, which like, yeah, r- first of all, relax that let me just say that <laughs> yeah relax. if you want the truth yeah you read a like, book. yeah like let's right, just yeah, yeah yeah the dude you know it wasn't god's gift to like you know morality let's just say no. that though though he did sign the civil rights act so that's fine but the but the movie I, re-watching it uh a couple weeks ago and then most of it today on honors him plenty i think and so you have all the backdoor stuff going on he's conflicted he's conflicted which he was and And so anyway the just to just to put a button on the publicity thing if you people don't know the criticism of how it handled that part of the lbg lbj thing hurt people suggested its ultimate box office i don't know if i believe that but like it didn't get nominated for enough, probably. Oh, yellow didn't get nominated, which is which insane. Feels insane, yeah. Insane. And so um there's just an irony in that happening where you have a Duvernay who like, you know, cut her teeth doing publicity. Yeah. Where like that type of she made a good point in interviews about that. Oh, did she? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, you know, I, I understand, but not all films are held to the standard. It's interesting, it's this one. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Totally yeah. correct, right? Like, yeah. There, oh my God, are, there are plenty of movies that are based on history or whatever that move this thing here and this thing there because dramatically that works better mm-hmm. or whatever, right? And like, and, well, it brings it back to the Martin Ritt thing. Like these are these are films. Like yeah, they're yeah. pieces of entertainment. Yeah. You know, if Thirteenth is about the Thirteenth Amendment, watch that. You know what I mean? And that is where you will get the information. It's very crucial. But, you know, you know, Selma is is, you know, it's a version of this true event. Right. And I think in this weird time we live in, sometimes that stuff. Yeah. The the standard seems to get muddled. And especially with stuff like Selma, as you said, Jen DuVernay pointed out rightfully, like you get into racial components about the the finish line getting pushed a bit. Yeah. You know, what have you? Yeah. Female, yeah. yeah, Female as well. Well said. Yeah. I did like, she, Oh, go ahead, Jen. No, go. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say that. I love also that she gave women more three dimension dimensionality in this thing. I mean, they had more to do. Maybe they were playing parts that they didn't, fully play in or we spent more time with women i think you know who i love expecting you know i forgot i i loved in this movie oh lorraine toussaint is amazing yeah right and and um and uh carmen aguyu right am i saying that right Uh, i I always get her last name wrong but um um she plays she plays uh dr king's wife of course and that scene where they're playing the FBI tape of Dr. King yeah. committing infidelity, which was obviously, you know, well documented in very illegal ways. Yeah. But, but 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 he did do it. That, that she knows the way he sounds. Yeah. yeah it's, it, that is a that is a uh, a beautiful, hard to watch scene, brilliantly lit by Bradford Young, who mm-hmm. whenever that guy directs a movie, I'll tell you, we'll come back and talk about. Because Bradford Young, man, like the way he lights things, whenever he directs his movie, 
I don't know what he'll do with the leg because it'll be fascinating. But but and, he does amazing think, work in Selma. Go ahead. Just so you know, her name is Carmen Ajogo. Ajogo. Thank yeah. you. Sorry, Carmen. But she's amazing in this movie, I think. And they give, to your point, Jen, um, DuVernay and her team give um, the the yeah the female characters agency that is not often present in these types of biopics unfortunately and I, yeah. to the point of the biopic right like i think this movie is another example of just kind of the i feel like the continuing example of how these movies are probably best made which is like alongside something like good night and good luck or something like that like it just picks an event mm-hmm. and then throughout the stages of that event decides to examine the man and the people around him right like and because you don't you know you don't need all of the context of the man dr martin luther king jr right like you you know who he is right presume presumably or whatever um but but just the framework of being able to kind of hone in on a specific thing and pick it apart that way i think is really smart um and just to go back to the lbj thing quickly like the weird thing about it getting criticism is like the complexities of the way it treats lbj is like one of the best parts of the movie so like 100 yeah. like and wilkinson is so good like it's it's so it's a it's a bizarre thing to to kind of take the movie to task for because it's just like again to the point of it being entertainment first those scenes and the way they're um the way they're engaging it uh, are the some of the most entertaining bits. I agree with you completely. Well, Selma is a really good one. I was glad to revisit it. So I'm glad we covered that one as well. And lastly, we have a British revenge film that one could very much describe as a nasty bit of work, but mean it as a compliment for sure. Stunt coordinator turned second unit director Jesse B. Johnson has been quietly turning out impressive efficient, highly effective, low-budget action movies for years. But it wasn't until he teamed up with actor and martial artist Scott Adkins that we really saw him start to get the recognition he deserved. They've worked together like over six times, I believe. Now Mm -hmm. something of a team who've made several movies together. We're taking a closer look at today at 2019's critically acclaimed Avengement, which introduces us to Adkins' escape prisoner who holds up a bar of organized crime members who he holds to blame for who he's become and the situation that he's found himself in as the movie gets going, filled with brutal and well-choreographed but bloody beatdowns, and it's constantly surprising in its reveals. I would love to hear your thoughts on Avengement. Well, let me just jump in because I, when you, we were talking about the four movies, you were like, oh, Benjamin, Jesse V. Johnson, what have you. He's a great guy. Yeah. 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 And I, and I had watched, I think, Triple Threat and a couple other movies. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of was like, oh, yeah, Avengement, sure. Like my reaction to the suggestion was very like, Oh yeah, all right, sure, Avengement, sure. (laughs) What whatever. I like action movies. And I let me let me tell you something. I was like, I loved this movie. Yeah, I was movie, like, yeah, this movie so well rules. done. Yeah, I mean, so and Triple good. Threat was fun, and, and the other ones I've seen have been good. And obviously, like you said, Jesse V. Johnson is a kind of a living legend of sorts in the stunt world, and now is growing his legend with Scott Atkins, who, in the similar way, you know, stunt man turned yes. leading man, yeah, which is great to see. Um, you know, up there with like Vic Armstrong and all these other guys, right? So it's like 
uh, very heartening when you think about crew members, you know, turn directors. But the thing about Avengement is like, I think this is actually the best example of our theme, which is like Jesse V. Johnson is a master of his craft. Using and he takes skills. that and he takes it though. And he like makes this amazing mm-hmm. short nasty movie where it's like all about the stunts but it's not just the stunts it's like probably one of Atkins's best performances yeah, of what yeah, I, of super, what I've seen of what I've super seen super com- super compelling I think great supporting characters like the woman who plays the mother I think is great oh the, yeah the guy who plays the brother brother is, is amazing mm-hmm. I think the wraparound story which like so commonly when you do that bookmark story you know in a screenplay yeah, is so commonly device. sucks yeah like framing devices so so much of the time not unlike voiceover narration you kind of go like Uh, It feels like a band-aid. I don't love this. I see why they did it, but I wish they didn't have to do it. Not here. I think like him having the pints while recounting the tale of why he's avenging. Yeah. It works perfectly. I think it could even read as a lovely short story, right? Like it is literary a bit, you know, it's also biblical in its allusions, which Priscilla Page pointed out. She wrote a beautiful essay. Oh, that's I gotta film. read that. That's yeah, it's amazing. Um, I actually put her in touch with Jesse uh, because years ago he was so kind. I reviewed the movie made The Butcher uh, with Eric Roberts, which was very impressive. And I heard from him. I think Eric Roberts tacked on a note as well. And so Raggy, was Raggedy touch- Man's own Eric Roberts. Yes, look at we're we're linking <laughs> back together. And uh, so I had kept in touch a little bit with Jesse and was able to. Um, kind of link them up and you know it's great he loves foreign film he's somebody who has very highbrow taste i mean he loves action movies but he'll talk you know about like the seven ups the car chase or stuff in le circle rouge or you know kurosawa movies and this had a, an allusion to a samurai film um I can't remember which one from the I early sixties. Uh, yeah, Harakiri, yeah. I believe yes. the Co- the Kobayashi movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so yeah but it things. has yeah, it has that. I think the coolest one of the coolest things about Avengement is it. You get a little bit of like Akins playing the Ronin character, yeah. kind of. But in the world of, it's funny you brought up the Seven Ups. But in the world of like Roy Scheider could have walked past the frame. Sure. And and you would yeah. be like, oh, is that like is Popeye Doyle nearby? Are yeah, we in like exactly you know, you know, the London the version guy of Ritchie. New York? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like lock stock guy Ritchie, whatever. Like, um, and I think that's it, all very welcoming to me. I found myself being like, and it I could just watch like I I I, li- I think I literally watched like another of his movies like later that night just because i was like i I gotta ride this high i gotta ride this avengement high (laughs) well and the you you speak to the sort of like the sort of alt guy richie of it all or whatever and like i had so many movies that try and do these things including guy richie movies right like copycat just yeah Yeah. they Mm -hmm. copycat themselves and they fail and it just doesn't it feels like a copy of a copy and this like doesn't feel like that like no it feels in the same genre and it feels of a piece and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that but it 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 feels very authentic and even if even if the frame story because it is it is a it's a very lean movie not just in its runtime but it's you know i don't know it's shot in like 
eight locations, right? Shot like, in 18 days. Right, too, right. Which well, is see, that's How a, did that's no insane. one die? Yeah. Well, let you me know, just, who does just that? someone with the efficiency of a stunt coordinator. Well, I was going to, let me just say, you know, this comes up a lot on podcasts and, and, you know, when, you know, name, name your film podcast, the shooting day thing will come up. And I think, you know, context is always very important with these things. Like it took them like, for example, it took them like weeks and weeks to film the, um, in the second Pirates of the Caribbean film when they're rolling down the mountain on the, the wheels, wheels, right? Mm-hmm. They actually filmed that, right? They actually had the wheels. They actually filmed that. That's all very practical, right? It's one of the greatest, I think, pieces of action filmmaking you'll ever see in your life, right? And I think, you know, those those Gore Verbinski pirate movies have gotten kind of re- re-canonized, probably deservedly so in some respects and in some respects not, but, but I, I love them. And that takes weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's very complicated. You're basically filming like, five seconds a day right but it's mm-hmm. so complicated so fine right that's its own thing and the infrastructure in place is so insane but like you know if you tell me violets are blue or the 2022 indie version of violets are blue shot in 18 days i would be very impressed but i would also understand how you did it right because i would yeah. be like okay there's no stunt people you're you know people bop you know you're doing this thing people it's in yeah. rooms talking it's yeah yeah me uh, being told on this podcast that Avengement was filmed in 18 days. Yeah. To Connor, to your point, it's like my guy must've storyboarded the shit out of this thing. He must've known it, the lens that he wanted to use. We're not going to cut this. We don't need to get coverage here. We'll film this in a master shot. Yeah. Casting stuntmen who know how to fight. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. And the location thing I think helps too, because it's like so, and and the, the nature of the story and I would believe you if you told me that, like, he crafted the story, you know, if it was a budgetary or scope thing, right, where he's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to craft this in a way that's easy to make. Right. I would believe that. But to both your points before, like, it doesn't feel hindered by that. It doesn't feel like a movie in a box. It just feels like something that's very tightly made and constructed. But when you do start to think of it in production terms, like they're going back to the same, like, two locations in the. Production, yes. Right. Like, yeah. There are there are like four fights that take place in the prison, but they're all in the same location. So like you and I know nothing about shooting stunt work, so I'm not trying to oversell it or undersell it. But like you could have shot that over four days a piece or, you know, two Mm -hmm. days, whatever. Right. Like and so I think that that to Dan's point about like you mentioned the 18 days and I can see how he did it, but it is impressive. Yeah. The whole whole movie is this sort of to me a bit of and i think most good action movies are this bit of like very impressive clockwork right and it all mm-hmm. comes together in a way that that feels natural as opposed to forced and in a it's so slight in a way that you're waiting and this isn't really a spoiler but the movie has an ultimate big payoff right mm-hmm. in terms of its in terms of its violence and in terms of its action and you are waiting for that and the movie's constructed sort of tightly wound that way too right where you're like well i know that everyone's going to start like fighting each other in this bar at some point like it's got to yes. and at what point is it going to ha- like at what point is is everything going to explode and it does and it doesn't disappoint um but again i think only in a way you know, I think it's hard to talk about this movie without at least mentioning the John Wick movies, which, yeah. you know, I think the success of those movies 
would be non-existent without being made by former stunt performers, right? Like, I just think that like contemporary action movies for the most part, you know, uh, have to be made that way now to really feel um, impressive, especially against the landscape of how, you know, of how we get our action in bigger budget movies, which is just against green screens. People aren't even in the same room, you know, think, think yeah. more of a spectacle. Yeah. So I, so I think if you're going to go against that, I feel like you have to just go straight to the source of the people who know how to put these things together. And Adkins, my God. Amazing. I mean, oh, he's great. He's yeah. Jesse called him like his own. He's a special effect. Essentially. Mm-hmm. He knows exactly what he's doing, but in this it's, I don't think Priscilla points it out beautifully in her piece that people know how to use him. And Mm. here you really do see he's got range. Uh, He can play like humor, uh, depth, drama. There's, there's stuff going on beneath that surface of, you know, he's, he can kill you basically, but yeah. Yeah. He's great. Um, Let me just interject with a note that came up earlier about Violet to Blue. So just the production designers on that movie were, it's funny actually, Peter Jameson and Bo Welch, who are like also legendary production designers, which is just funny because like they all just were on this movie making it to get this like little, little movie. That's great. Bo Welch, who's Tim Burton's (laughs) production designer. And Men Men in Black. I mean, you know, Men in Black. Probably friends. Sure. Yeah. Just like stunt Um, people working together. We have production designers working together. Which I love. And then another just last funny thing I'm proud to mention about Violets of Blue is it's the script is written by Naomi Foner, who is the mother of Maggie and Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes. And Steve and Gyllenhaal, of course, is a is a filmmaker in his own right. Their father. Um, but yeah, like Avengement, just to kind of get back to that, like Atkins is great. I was trying to look it up. Ha- Atkins and, and Statham have made a movie together, right? They must have at some point. Am I wrong on this? I'm looking it up right now. I don't know. They seem like they should play brothers in a movie. They do, or like or like, really or like, that, or like yeah. foes. Do you know that Scott or like, Atkins is in the new John Wick movie, which feels correct oh uh, this is a bummer though yeah they're in movies together but you know what they are come on the expendables which oh. okay. uh, yeah. I, you which what you need is you need jesse to make a like brawl and cell block Ready. nine yeah. yeah i know he's like, trying to get to the next rung make a wrath of man like make, have him budget. make his but yeah, but, yeah, yeah I love literally like statham versus atkins yeah. i love yeah. this yeah it could be like estranged brothers they could be like friends who became foes come on let's do it this is a free idea i mean we're yeah jesse yeah we license this to you and you alone you take this you run with it buddy and even the the thing i do think what helps atkins in this movie to your point jen about like him maybe not previously having the opportunity is that Mm -hmm. because this movie is so literary I mean, he, he whole he the whole thing is on his shoulders. Like the whole movie is him talking, but for the most part, right? Like it's him telling stories. And I think I'm not, you know, I this I'm not pulling this from anywhere. I'm just this is an assumption, but it does feel like he really did use that to. Uh, he really seems to have taken advantage of the opportunity to like, oh, I I have five pages of dialogue that i have to deliver here so i'm gonna really like be able to deliver it right and um i think he helped um come up with the idea a little bit or he was you know in their collaboration i think helped them out like Like, developing this yeah that's that's what i wanted to say a little bit at least 
I had heard, but I'm not. No, I, I I think it shows because I haven't seen a ton of his movies, but this certainly does feel like an outlier to me in terms yeah. of like what 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 he's like able. what you mentioned what he's and and allowed to do right like yeah uh, given not putting him in a box yep yeah exactly no we need him with Statham I love that idea well you guys this was I think a really cool idea for an episode because we got to cover all kinds of films all kinds of people. Before I let you go, uh, are there any other crew members, turn directors, uh, films that you would like to shout out? If people who like this idea, they should check out. Additionally, I mean, we yeah, said Raggedy it, Man. We said some yeah, yeah, yeah. If you if you go down the rabbit hole, you'll you'll be kind of pleasantly surprised and like curious. I think like you know, interesting ones are like the one off people like so you know Janusz Kaminski directed this kind of maligned horror movie called Lost Souls with Winona Ryder and Ben Chaplin oh, yeah. um I wouldn't like recommend running to see Lost Souls but it's just interesting when you know who Janusz Kaminski is he's Steven Spielberg's cinematography he has mm-hmm. a very specific way of lighting and like you know he does a lot of that in Lost Souls and you can kind of see him almost like lose the thread like in the movie which is just interesting, right? And so, like, that's interesting. There's a million examples, and I think transcendence. Remember, transcendence that one? is Wally Pfister, who is a long, you know, a Christopher Nolan's longtime cinematographer. Kind of, oh, I, 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 I think he 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 pivoted back to commercials after transcendence for one reason or another. Speaking to what we're directing being hard, where you kind of go like, yeah, maybe I don't want to make a 100 million dollar movie, you know, or, or sure. you know what yeah. have you. Um, but yeah, I just think seek it out because it's its own interesting curio and you can learn a lot about, and the other thing is you can just learn a lot about like crew roles, you know, and, and just kind of, you know, as much as you want to be kind of educated in that respect, um, it can open up a lot of avenues just in that, in that way. There's a, um, there's a movie that I was kind of quietly lobbying Dan to put on our slate (laughs) called phase four. Ooh. Um, which well, is- yeah, Jen, we were talking about it because it was, it's, it's, it's a, it's a goofy movie. I think it's, it's yeah, the it's Stall not, Bass. It, it's not very spider good. movie, and it's oh a, yeah, and I, I, I believe like, it's no about spiders. ants. Yeah, I, is it ants? I haven't seen it, but I just because oh, we were talking. No, it's certainly about bugs. Um, Did you have you seen it, Con? No, and oh, okay, that's kind of okay, what, okay. but I do remember it being on, uh, I think it was part of like a Turner Classic Movies Day of Programming years ago. And, yeah. but, but it was one of those, it was like a Saul Bass day, but it was just all movies with titles by Saul Bass. And then at like, mm-hmm. you know, at like 11, 11 p.m. Yeah. They, they like phase slipped four. in phase four. And I was just like, wait, Saul Bass like directed a movie and like not only directed a movie, but like directed maybe the creature feature the last kind of movie you would expect Saul Bass to direct um that's so I have not I still have yet to see it so I'm for sure gonna check it out uh and I'll quietly report back on Twitter or something there you go but uh, (laughs) but for for any of you out there who are interested Saul Bass directed a movie cliffhanger we're leaving you guys on yeah seriously what Connor's gonna think of this well (laughs) I really want everyone's asking guys yeah, everyone wants to know. This Thanks so for having fun. us, Jen. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so this was great. Come back with one of your million ideas. I love them all. Oh, well, oh yeah, we no. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll do the Scott Brothers or something. We'll, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, 
RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.